You're listening to audio from Kingsway Christian Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit kingswaychurch.org. Well, good morning, everybody. It's been a good morning, man. It's a great worship set, wasn't it? All right, so a few weeks ago, a couple weeks ago, in case you weren't here, we started this series called Blurred Vision. I told you the beginning of a story, but I never told you the end of the story about the day that I found out that I had lost my vision. So we got tested by a doctor and I was 2015, and the next thing I know, I took a baseball to the lip and my parents realized my eyes had changed. And it all happened within roughly a year span. Well, fast forward now. So then I had to go get glasses. And I'm gonna date myself for a minute because it was back in the day when contacts weren't really all that popular yet. They were just starting to experiment with LASIK in places like Canada and Mexico. Neither of one were my parents willing to take me to try out. How many of you guys remember those days? So fast forward now. So basically, I had to go get glasses. But what I learned was, because I got pictures. You may have seen a few on Facebook of me with glasses on. And they were like, not cool. They were the big kind of circle things. I don't know. I thought they looked the coolest. They did not. I got better over time of picking better glasses. Basically what I would do is I would wear my glasses when I desperately needed them and then be blind the rest of the time. I finally got to the point where I'd wear contacts, but at one point I got an infection in my eye and then I moved to Colorado. And I don't know if you know this, Colorado was like the second driest state in the United States. So contacts just simply hardly ever worked. And so I most of the time drove, I mean, just was blind. I'm not confessing that. And so I remember there came this point where I needed new glasses and I needed new contacts and I needed eye checkup and I needed all these things and I was doing the math and going, this is gonna cost me $500 to $800 or whatever it turns out to be for all of these things over the next year and I'm gonna do it again in a couple of years. I mean, you, you feel the pain, right? So I remember because I called my mom and I said, mom, look, I don't have the money um, to pay for LASIK, but if you could front me the money for LASIK, I will pay you back. And I remember her saying, you know what? <laughs> I keep this little account that I just put money in. It's kind of like my fun little account. I would be glad to do this for you. Now, my wife was terrified of the idea of LASIK. Uh, we had been told they had just come out with a new version where like the computer can map your eye and track your eye with you and the laser shooting in your eye. The other side of that though is... Um, at that point, it was only about 85% effective, the old methods, and so there's a 15% chance nothing gets better or your eyes get worse. My wife was like, yes, I don't like those odds. So this new version, they told me it was like 98% effective. I'm thinking, come on, what's the worst? Like, what are the odds on the 2%? So I went in and I got LASIK, and I've told that story before, but here was the point. I'll never forget the day my eyes started working. It took about a week or two for kind of all the fuzz to wear off and everything to kind of get over it. But I'll never forget the day that I kind of opened my eyes and I walked outside and literally, here is what I said to my wife and my friends. There are actually blades of grass. Like, I would watch football on TV and be like, just a swath of a field. I'd walk outside, like, the trees were just like these fuzzy, blurry things. Does anybody who have eye problems know what I'm talking about? Like, some of you are like, yes, when I'm reading, you know, you're doing this thing. And depending whether you're near or far aside, it depends on what's blurry to you. And it was as if God had made my life come alive. All of a sudden, birds had feathers. <laughs> it was like insects had legs and different parts to their body. I mean, all these things that I knew, but you can't see them. They don't feel real until you can see it for yourself. And that's kind of what I want to talk about today. Because in the Bible, there's this thing called faith. And the Bible says faith is believing without seeing. And it makes it really hard to walk through everyday life because we are trusting in a God we can't literally see. We see his effects, but at the end of the day, there's a moment of trust, of faith in all of us where we have to say, God, I'm going to go in with you, though I'm not quite sure how it's going to work out. But that's the essence of faith. So before I jump into today, let me just bring you up speed. In case you're visiting, watching online, you've missed all the others. Let me just real quick. Here's basically the two things we've covered up to this point. In week one, we basically decided this one thing. Number one, set your highest values to match where you want to spend eternity. So when you think about it, basically in the Bible, you have two options. You're going to spend eternity with God, we call that heaven, or you're going to spend eternity separated from God, we call that hell. Basically, those are your two options. So if you want to spend eternity in heaven with God, 
then you just kind of need to set your values on earth to match where it is you want to spend eternity. Last week, we talked about this thing. Basically, if you're going to do that, then here's how you do that. Here's the greatest value you could do in life, and that is this. Choose to put God first. And that'll apply in nine million ways, even beyond, I just made that number up. I have no idea what the real number is. But in a lot of ways, that'll apply to your life that go beyond just this. However, as we're going to apply those two things today, I'm going to add one to those two things. At the end of your life, here's the question we've been wrestling with. Will you have lived a good story? You know what makes a good story? You know those kind of movies that when you go home, you really have to think about them and wrestle with them? Those kind of movies that you can't just like go out afterwards and have a good time. Like it's just in the back of your mind. It's that profound love story. It's that great catching. I don't know. There was like moving. There was like a, a something behind it. I mean, there's plenty of movies we go watch, right? And it's like, oh, the special effects are amazing. Or, or man, I just love Marvel stories. But there are those movies that when you watch them, they move you, right? They stir you. They do something in you that won't let you stay the way you were when you went in. Well, the reality is all of us want to live a story like that. All of us want to get to our life and say that we lived the life that we thought about, dreamed about, hoped we'd live. When we're kids, very few of us, very few of us had dreams of becoming boring. Am I right? I mean, you were a kid. What did you want to be when you grew up? I want to be a fireman. I want to be a policeman. I want to be a doctor. I want to be a transformer. I mean, you wanted to be something great, right? Something significant. And you wanted to be something where almost always in the story, you were the hero. I want to be a teacher. I want to help people. I want to be a doctor. Very few kids pick boring stories but something happens as we get older doesn't it i mean the reality is i don't know about you but i don't have any superpowers and as i started studying how hard it is to be a fireman and a policeman i really didn't gravitate toward me and so i started gravitating towards my gifts which is not a bad thing but the thing is if i gravitate towards my gifts and i don't keep in mind the bigger story that god is writing in my life then everyday life becomes about just trying to be happy today and starting over tomorrow. Donald Miller, in his great little book, A Million Miles at a Thousand Years, says this, a story is based on what people think is important. So when we live a story, we are telling people around us what we think is important. All right, so let's just take this little quote, apply it to our lives. If everybody else around you, your friends, your neighbors, your coworkers, people you go to school with, if they were to evaluate your life, what would they say is most important to you? Would they say purses? Or makeup? Or shoes? Or football? Or basketball, I realize we're in Indiana. Would they say it's your car, your house? Would they say your family? How many of them would say something like this? Man, I don't know that person super well, but just based off of what I see, I could say what I think God is most important to them. How about this one? And I don't know them real well. I see them. Or, man, I'm telling you, if you knew them the way I knew them, you would know this. They love people. I mean, they, they, they don't love people. They love people. I mean, you get the difference, right? I mean, like, I love people, but no, they love people. How do you know? Like, you see it in how they act, how they treat people, and how they invest their lives. Here's the thing. If you're visiting with us today, today is going to be one of the most radical messages you could ever hear. Welcome to Kingsway. We may never see you again. <laughs> so I want you to know up front, we're actually really glad you're here. But what I want to do today is I'm going to read you two primary texts in the Bible, and both of them are radical, radical because in the end of the day, they call those of us who want to follow hard after God, who want to spend our eternities with him, who want to be with him, they call us to die to this life 
so that we might live in another world. Let's begin our first text today. Luke chapter six, Luke chapter six, verse 27. This is Jesus talking in one of his most famous sermons. He says this. But to you who are willing to listen. (laughs) Well, you're going to have to self-evaluate on that one. I think Jesus, I love the way he just leads. This is a great lead-in, right? Okay, but if you're willing to listen, I'm willing to listen. Okay, well, before you say that, hear what I have to say. I say, love your enemies. What? Who says that? He goes further. Do good to those who hate you. Do good to them? No, if by good you mean punch them in the nose, yeah, I'm all over it, Jesus. If by good you mean, you know, not helping them, yeah, I'm down. He goes on. He doesn't stop there. Verse 28. Bless those who curse you. Who in their right mind does that? Pray for those who hurt you. What? By the way, that one little sentence there in verse 28, that little verse, I mean, that alone would probably save some of your marriages who are on the brink of destruction. Just bless those who curse you. So when your spouse is being difficult, just bless them. And when they're being mean, just pray for them. Change your marriage, I'm telling you. If someone, verse 29, slaps you on one cheek, offer the other cheek also. He didn't mean turn around, just to be clear. (laughs) If someone demands your coat... Offer your shirt also. Give to anyone who asks. And when things are taken away from you, don't try to get them back. Do to others as you would like them to do to you. You've heard that last part before, right? The, what is this called? The golden rule. You've even heard it called the golden rule, even though Jesus never called it the golden rule. That's because if you were to study actually philosophers, religious leaders of other, you know, whatever sects or groups, you would find that principle right there is extremely common in many other religions. It's everything around what Jesus said that makes the gospel message so unique. When he says, pray for your enemies, bless your enemies, do good to those who hurt you, abuse you, curse you. I mean, could you imagine, by the way, just imagine if every American were to practice this, and it doesn't matter your political stance, you matter, imagine what would be different in the political world. Could you imagine what would be different on ESPN, CNN, Fox News, on all the gossip channels? I mean, could you just imagine the radical nature of what Jesus just implied. In essence, Jesus has just challenged us to look beyond the world we're living in and to look deep into the lives of those around us. Realize this is the heart of Jesus' message. I want you not to see people opposing you or hurting you. I want you not to see them as the enemy. I want you to see them as territory to be claimed for God. I want you to see them as people who are far off yet from him. And he is desperately pursuing them, chasing them, going after them. And right now, you're taking the brunt of their anger at him. So as his representative, what you're going to do is do to him, to them, what he does to them, which is bless them, help them, serve them, love them. But that's radical. So radical that most of us don't do it. Just being honest. I struggle with this. I've struggled with this in my life, and I don't mean in the distant past. I mean in the near present. I struggle with this. And the Spirit convicts me, and he reads me these verses, and he says, you realize I mean this for you too. And I'm like, can't I just preach on it and tell everybody else they need to do this? He's like, no. That's called hypocrisy. I'm like, but if nobody knows I'm being a hypocrite, it's okay, right? No, it's not. Because I want to do to others not just what I would want them to do to me, but I want to do to others what God has so graciously already done to me. As I've been reading this book, Bob Goff's Love Does, he says this, I don't think anyone aims to be typical, really. 
Most people even vow to themselves sometime in high school or college not to be typical. But still, they just kind of loop back to it somehow. Like the circular rails of a train at an amusement park, the scripts we know offer a brand of security, of predictability, of safety for us. But the problem is, they only take us where we've already been. They loop us back to places where everyone can easily go, not necessarily where we were made to go. Living a different kind of life takes some guts and grits and a new way of seeing things. I want you to imagine with me for just a moment, and this won't be true for everybody, but I'm gonna say it like it is, and you can wrestle with God whether it is for you. I want you to imagine with me for a moment that you came in here today, and whether you knew it or not, you had a blurred vision, a blurred vision of life. You needed LASIK surgery, but on your heart, not on your literal eyes. And that what God wants to do in all of the verses that are left for us to read is he wants to remove the blurriness so that you might see life in its actual clarity. You might live life in 4,000 HD. You would see it with such absoluteness that you go, wow, that is beautiful. That's what I want for you. And the way we get there is by first acknowledging the message of the world that we live in is a confusing one because it tempts us at every turn to go against the heart of God. I'm not saying you should get rid of cable. We got rid of cable a long time ago. A lot of people are doing that. But like others, we have Amazon Prime. We may or may not have borrowed family members' Netflixes occasionally. If I, if I acknowledge that publicly, am I going to get in trouble? We rent movies. I mean, we're not like anti-media. But the major reason we got rid of cable wasn't because we were saving money by doing it in other ways. The major reason we got rid of cable was, number one, I would sit around. I love ESPN, and I realized I could watch it for hours instead of spending time with my family. And one day I said to my wife, it just dawned on me, after having this on in the background almost the whole day, that all it is is sports gossip. Like, girls have their own celebrity gossip, whatever shows they like, but for me, it was just sports gossip. It's guys all day long hyper-criticizing other guys of their lives or lifestyles on the field, off the field, and all this stuff. And sports radio is no different. And one day, because the other show that I love is HGTV, all those DIY, I just love those shows. And my wife said, you're like never content with our house. I'm like, but do you know what we could do if we just blew out that wall? She's like, and put in a new wall? Yeah, but it would be over here instead of over there. And I would watch these shows, and they would always tell me the life I have is not enough. So therefore, I need more. And look, I'm not, I don't care what you do at your house. That's between you, your bank, and God. However, I want you to get a bigger view for life. Let's go back to what Jesus says. Luke 6, verse 32. If you love only those who love you, why should you get credit for that? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good only to those who do good to you, why should you get credit for that? Even sinners do that much. And if you lend money only to those who can repay you, why should you get credit? Even sinners will lend to other sinners for a full return. In other words, it's very simple what he's saying. He's saying more of the same. But in essence, what he's saying is, if the only people you invest your life and your resources in are those you know the most, love the most, spend the most time with, then you do not yet understand the heart of your father. You have a blurred vision for your life. How can you say that, God? I mean, I'm kind, I'm nice, I'm a good person, I'm generous. I know See, we're going beyond, did you help that person on the corner holding the sign? Jesus is going way past that. He's saying, look, I'm assuming you're kind to those who are kind to you. I'm assuming you give to those who have need. No, no, no. I'm talking about actually going after those who are your enemies. How can you do that? Because that's what I do. When Jesus died on the cross and he looked down at those who had just hung him there, who were gambling for his clothes, who were hurling insults at him, and he said, Father, forgive them. They don't have any idea what they're doing. He revealed to us who the Father really was, what he was really like. Again, as Donald Miller says, if you watched a movie about a guy who wanted a Volvo and worked for years to get it, you wouldn't cry at the end when he drove it off the lot testing the windshield wipers. 
You wouldn't tell your friends you saw a beautiful movie or go home and put a record on to think about the story you'd seen. The truth is, you wouldn't remember that movie a week later, except you'd feel robbed and want your money back. Nobody cries at the end of a movie about a guy who wants a Volvo. But we spend years actually living those stories and expect our lives to be meaningful. The truth is, if what we choose to do with our lives won't make a story meaningful, it won't make a life meaningful either. So if you sit down and somebody else were to evaluate your life now, would they say you're living a great story? Would they know it? When you tell stories about your weekend, when you tell stories about your family, when, you, when, when they see the way you invest your money, is it always about you and me and more? Or would other people look at you and say, there's something special, there's something unique. I want to sit down and watch that movie because that person's living a story. Jesus tells us more about how to do this. Luke chapter 6, verse 35. He says this, love your enemies, do good to them, lend to them without expecting to be repaid. Then your reward from heaven will be very great and you will truly be acting as children of the most high for he is kind to those who are unthankful and wicked. And just stop there. That right there is radical. Who in their right mind would give this financial advice to a friend? So uh, I was at lunch the other day and um, there's this guy at work. He's just, he has really been on me all the time, just driving me bonkers. He's constantly criticizing my work. He's constantly making fun of me in front of the other guys. Like I just, I literally can't stand this guy. And I'm sitting there at lunch and I'm listening to him tell somebody else about how he's upside down in his house and he thinks he's going to lose it. And there's a part of me that went, serves you right, buddy. And then I felt like the Holy Spirit said, why don't you go to him and float him the money he needs to get up from under this? And now that person's looking at you and saying, what do you think? Now, the natural response of most in this world, hopefully not us, would be, well, that's a terrible idea. Tell them to go to the bank. You don't want to secure that. You don't want to help with that. You don't want to, what? Are you nuts? Like, given the way he's treated you, given all the things that he said, why would you do that? Jesus says, no, no, no. See, that guy, he needs me. So you, you go out of your way to love them, to help him, to serve them. But it's going to cost me something. Yeah, I know. Welcome to being a Christian where we try desperately to become like Jesus and all we say and all we do, it costs him everything. Here's the thing I want you to notice. God encourages us to do it without any expectation of being repaid on earth. In other words, you don't go into these kind of conversations with the expectation that, okay, if I'm generous in this way to people who have needs or whatever it is, whether they're enemy or friend or neighbor, somebody, I don't know, I'm going to go into it expecting that one day they're going to give it back to me. No, no, no. Jesus is saying, I want you to go into it with the expectation that you may never see that money again. That is absolutely terrible financial advice, Jesus. But here's the point. Somebody's watching. And it's not Santa Claus. Somebody's watching, and he's taking note. That's why he says in verse 36, you must be compassionate just as your father is compassionate. In other words, have a heart like your heavenly father. He's left you here. You're his body. You're representing him. He's with you. He's watching over you. He's for you. You're okay now, if you haven't been here, then some of what I'm saying is even more radical than it even is. But bring in what I've told you the last couple weeks. If you missed it, here it is. Bring in what I've told you so far. We've got the passage like last week where Jesus tells us, seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness, and he'll take care of making sure you have enough food and clothes and shelter. He'll meet all your needs because you're more precious to him than birds and flowers and all of the rest of creation. So when you tie these two ideas together, and oh, by the way, read Matthew 5 and 6, they're all right there in one message. 
What Jesus is trying to say to you is you can trust me with this. You can act like me on earth and I will take care of you. You can actually step out in faith. You don't have to be driven by fear. You can actually trust me. I will not fail you. Most of us struggle to believe it though. If I could give you one little piece of advice today, one takeaway, it would simply be this. Invest your resources where they get the greatest return. You know where that is? People. People. So don't invest your resources in, in, in necessarily what's going on in right now in the stock market. It's going like gangbusters, right? Someday it's not. Don't just invest your resources in cars. You can make money if you know what you're doing. You can buy low, sell high. Don't just count on the realty market. None of those things are bad. None of those things are evil. But realize the income coming off those things have a grander purpose in this world. And Jesus is trying to get us to understand that the greatest investment you will ever make is for people. I have a friend who um, goes to our church. He has no idea I'm saying this today, and he'll probably uh, be embarrassed to turn red that I'm saying it. But I have a friend who owns a realty business in town. And the whole reason he launched this business is because he wanted to give back to the community and to others in need. And so he literally looks for, on the sale of each of his properties and homes, he looks for a way to take proceeds from that and to be generous and to give them away. Of course he has to feed his family. Of course he has to take care of his own bills. Of course he does. Jesus isn't asking him to not have any food or money so that others can. But he simply looks at it and says, how do I take what I have and bless it and give to others? And if you know who I'm talking about, you know him. Is he a perfect man? No. Ask his wife. But is he a good man? Yes. Has he been convicted by these principles? Is he trying to live them out? Yes. And I'm telling you, if you were to sit down and talk with my friend, you would find that your life would be blessed as well if you were to follow these principles also. In fact, Jesus goes even more radical, like 10 chapters later in the book of Luke. He tells a story. So uh, let me just set this up real quick. So uh, I grew up in, in a home where the Bible was taught, and I grew up going to church my whole life. But I got to be honest, most of the Bible was confusing to me. I mean, I get the big stories. David, the little guy, you know, takes a rock, throws it at Goliath, the big guy, and he wins. God's big. Yay. Okay, I got those. Those were easy. The ones that were really hard are like some of the things Jesus said. I go, I don't have any idea what it means. Well, as I continued to read my Bible and go to church and pick up other books and study, all of a sudden I have a pretty good grasp on the Bible. So I can read most of the Bible and have a pretty good understanding of where it's going without any extra help. That's come through hard work. So if you're at that early stage, don't be surprised that you're not there yet, but you will be one day. However, there are certain stories that I come to and I go, what? Like, I don't get that. Jesus and he tells one of those in Luke chapter 16 and in Luke chapter 16 I'll summarize most of it for you essentially I don't know where Jesus tells his disciples a story he says there once is a rich guy and he gets a report that his manager of the business of the estate has been ripping him off so he calls the manager in and he says to the manager all right get your last report ready because you're about to be fired so the man has to go now and actually write up his last report of the owner and all of his stuff, and he's going to literally be let go. Nothing's changing the owner's mind. So what he does is he goes out and he begins to call in all the people who owe the owner money. And he looks at the first guy and he says, okay, you owe 800 gallons of olive oil. And again, that wouldn't make much sense to us, but back in the day, that was a big part of what they produced. And he said, I'll tell you what, let's cut your bill in half. You now owe him 400 then he goes on, he looks at another guy, and he's like, you know, you got 1,000 bushels of wheat. I'll tell you what, let's cut that. We'll make it 800 bushels of wheat. Great. Now, all of you go. Now, the whole point is he did this over and over and over again so that each person who owed that guy money, now, you may be thinking to yourself, this guy just completely hosed the owner. Like, he was fired going in. He is busted going out, right? I mean, that's what goes through our mind. But then Jesus says at the end of his own story, Luke Chapter 16, verse 8. Verse 8. The rich man had to admire the dishonest rascal. By the way, rascal is biblical. You can use it later. For being so shrewd. And it is true that the children of this world are more shrewd in dealing with the world around them than are the children of the light. Now, when I came across that, that passage 
Many times I come up against it and I'm like, I, I don't know what to do with this one, Jesus. <laughs> I'm not gonna lie. Like this one's hard for me. Like, I don't get it. So it seems to me, Jesus, that you are commending dishonesty. And yet I've read my Bible. You hate dishonesty. You hate dishonest scales. You hate deception. Satan is the father of lies. And so therefore when we lie, we become children of our father, Satan. So how in the world can you commend this guy, this rascal? But then Jesus goes on to the very next verse. And he makes crystal clear the reason he commends the rascal. Here's what he says, verse nine. Here's the lesson. Use your worldly resources to benefit others and make friends. Then when your possessions are gone, they will welcome you to an eternal home. Now, as a public speaker, if Jesus were to sit down and we were to like analyze his message, we used to do this at Bible college, like we'd get up and preach in front of the whole class of future preachers, terrifying experience, by the way, and then they'd give you advice on how bad you were and what you needed to do different. And then you'd think, oh yeah, well, your turn's next, buddy. Now, if Jesus were to sit down with me and for me to say, okay, Jesus, <clears throat> let's talk about what you said here. Um, I'm not sure your illustration gets where you mean for it to go. I mean, I know you're God and all in the flesh, I get it, but Jesus, your story doesn't really make the point you're trying to make. Jesus would go, really? Like he often does when we're talking. Think about it. What does a guy who's been mismanaging his boss's money and then takes his, the, the boss's stuff and, and, and literally cheats him out of more money and then gets commended by Jesus. How is there a connect between that and us using our worldly resources to benefit others? It's the perfect illustration. Because ultimately, what Jesus is trying to say is, see, when we live in this world, we have to think as if we're in this world. However, we have to live as if our ultimate goal is somewhere else. The shrewd manager who was being fired understood that he is about to be unemployed. And in the story, you get a little bit of insight into what's going on in his head. He says to himself, I'm not strong enough to go and work in the fields. I'm not going to be able to make any money. I'm too prideful to go beg. I'm not going to be able to get any money. So I had to come up with an option in order that when I'm fired from here, I got some friends on the outside in order to Maybe be kind to me, give me a job, decide that they're gonna trust me because they maybe owe me one or something like that. So the point of what Jesus is saying is the people of this world who do not have God's spirit in them, they are far more wise and shrewd about how to live and interact in this world. But the people of light are typically so innocent, maybe so clueless that they don't get it. They just go along with life as usual, not realizing that one day it's all coming to an end. So, in some way, be like this shrewd manager and leverage everything you have here so that you might make friends out of enemies and welcome them there. So that when this life is over, like the manager's job was over, in heaven, you'll have a huge harvest of friends, of people who look at you and say, thank you. Thank you for being kind when I was mean. Thank you for helping me when everybody else was mocking me. Thank you for sacrificing from your vacation, your resources, your savings account that my family could pull through. And what we're talking about here is people on the last day looking at you and commending you for how you lived here. Now, I want you to fast forward in your brain as we've been talking about over the last couple of weeks to that last day. And I want you to think ahead and you're standing in heaven and imagine that there is some sort of multitude. It could be five, it could be 50, it could be 5,000, I don't know. And they're people, some you've met, some you've never met, like little kids in orphanages in India and in Mexico, perhaps in Peru. And you don't really know them, you just know that you gave sacrificially that they might come to know God and they're gonna stand there and say, thank you. 
thank you. I know you kept driving that old beater a little longer so that you could generously give to us. Thank you. I know that there was a season where you really, really, really wanted to knock that wall out and move it over. Thank you. Thank you. Now, would you be willing to trade whatever that thing in front of you is for that? If your answer is no, then I just want to caution you. You do not yet have the heart of your father. And there's no judgment in that. I'm not condemning you in that. I just want you to have your heavenly father's perspective about the world that we live in. Because he gave up everything so that every last person would have the greatest opportunity to come to know him. If I could summarize Jesus' words, I put it in this little phrase. Be generous on earth and you will be rich in heaven. Be generous on earth and you will be rich in heaven. Now, let's ask this question for a moment and we'll kind of spend the rest of our time here. How did the early church actually live this out? How did they actually solve these things? Because they were given the same teachings we were given, right? These things I'm sharing with you that were all shared with them, and they had to figure out, what do I do with this? Well, let's just take a look at how they answered that question here. Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 2, verse 44. Here's one historical account of what they did. And all the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. Okay, so first of all, the believers gathered together. And they made sure that nobody among them had a need. Paul expands on this later, like decades later. He's writing some of his writings. And he says, give first to the believer and then to the unbeliever. In other words, you can't have somebody sitting in your life group, somebody in your church who's hungry and isn't cared for, but then give that money to somebody who's outside the faith. We are here as a family, a family. And in a family, we don't let our kids starve so somebody else's kids can eat. By the way, this isn't the only teaching. I just don't have time to go deep into it today. Paul also expands and says, and if somebody among you is stealing, tell them to stop and get a job so they'll have something to contribute. If somebody among you is a widow, but they have children who will not take care of them, do not take care of that widow. You make those kids take care of mom and dad because that's part of honoring your father and mother. So we take these kinds of verses and we have to lump them in with the rest of the New Testament teachings and get clarity about what it means to be the body of Christ. But it means at least in part that if I have an abundance and you don't have enough, then I'm to use my abundance. I'm to assume God gave it to me for you. Look at the very next verse though, and this one is a little bit mind-boggling. Verse 45, they sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. Man, I've, I've spent a lot more time on this verse in the past than I have time right now. But let me just say this. If you don't know anything about the Jewish people, then you don't understand that property is the biggest deal to them. Remember all the wars going on right now in the Middle East between the Jews and the Arabs? What's it all about? Land. This land was supposed to be theirs as an inheritance forever. Then we get to the New Testament and they're selling it. What in the world would make Jewish people sell their land? They became Christians and realized this land wasn't the real land. The real land is in another place. It's waiting for us in heaven. So we might as well sell what we have on earth that everybody else finds valuable so that we could do more for other people. It didn't stop there. As the church continues on, it's just a couple chapters later. Look at this, chapter four, Acts chapter four, verse 32. All the believers were united in heart and mind, and they felt that what they owned was not their own. Who in America feels like that? Oh, I worked hard for this. But Jesus says, no, 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 see, that was given to you by your Father in heaven. He owns it. You're the manager. You're the steward. He gave it to you. So they all felt like it wasn't theirs. So what they do? They shared everything they had. They don't mean everything. I mean, <laughs> they mean like most things, right? Well, they just shared everything they had. You have a need? I got a, a resource? Great, it's yours. They didn't go, well, this was grandma's, or I just got this, I really wanted it. No, it's yours. It's yours. It's just a thing. Things break, things burn, things die. Moths eat holes, rust destroys the metal. That's what happens to things on earth. Verse 33, 
The apostles testified powerfully to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's great blessing was upon them all. How many times have you prayed for the Lord to bless you? How did the New Testament church, the early church, get God's blessing? Generosity. Verse 34, there were no needy people among them because those who owned land or houses would sell them and bring the money to the apostles to give to those in need. I want you to see that last part there. Not only did they sell them, what did they do with them? They brought them to the apostles to give to those in need. One of the hardest things about my job, I'm just gonna be really honest, is there's this one four-letter word that when it's there, everything's great, and when it's not, it's not. You know what that word is? Trust. When guys like me in positions like mine do good things, the church trusts. And the church doesn't mind Bring, selling important things, property and houses, and bringing them to the apostles, trusting that they're going to disperse those. But when guys like me in positions like mine don't do well or do right, what happens is there's this lack of trust, and people start to go, I don't, I don't know, you know, pastor's driving a nicer car, pastor's got a nicer house, I don't know. Now, there's certain backgrounds where that's celebrated, like God must love me more than you because look at my house, look at my car, but we don't teach that here. And I realize there's been seasons of lack of trust at Kingsway. And I realize there's always, I, I, it's like the number one thing I hear at Kingsway is, we just don't feel like we always understand what's going on. I'm like, I don't always know how to communicate. I say from the stage, you weren't here. I sent in an email, and went to your junk mail. I put it on the website, you didn't look. So, like, so what happens over time is people go, well, I don't know where it's going on with that. I don't know, can I trust? Can I trust? Can I trust? Here's my challenge to all of you. When you look at Kingsway Christian Church, when you look at your elders, when you look at your lead pastor, are we perfect Let's just all say it together. Ready? One, two, three. Yeah. Hey. <laughs> you must have been talking to my wife. No, of course not. Do we make mistakes? Yeah. More than we wish we did at times? You bet. Were any of those intentional to harm or confuse? No. Are we learning every day? Yep, we do so many things better today than we did four years ago, and by God's grace, that will never stop. So at the end of the day, trust is a choice. A choice to make that I can or I can't. And I'm just asking you to grade on the curve, to look at the majority of what you see and what you hear and what you know, and to say, you know what, I trust. Because if you trust that I'm asking you to do something, I'm asking you to trust us with your resources. I'm not saying we'll always do it right. We might make some mistakes along the way and we'll do our absolute best to end up saying, yeah, that one didn't go the way we'd hoped. You know what? Project New Day is not where we wanted it to be at this point. It is not yet going the way we hope, but it's not done. We had meetings yesterday, making sure to get back on track, making sure it gets done in a timely fashion because we're working it. We're not done with it. We're working it. But I realize those things create distrust sometimes, right? Like, okay, can we really trust this? These guys really have a clue. And sometimes the answer might be not the clue we thought we had. But we're working it, and we're praying about it, and we're trusting God to show up. And if you're willing to take that step of trust, then you could do what the New Testament church did. You can bring your resources right here and trust that we're going to send them out to hungry kids and people without the gospel to the ends of the earth. We're gonna put together 500 people, theoretically, going on a mission trip in 2018. We're gonna host trunk or treats. We're gonna throw parties at Christmas and Easter. We're gonna bring kids in for camps and retreats and, and, and uh, day camps. And we're gonna tell them about the love of Jesus. We're gonna provide them coffee. We're gonna spoil them and bless them so when they show up here, you know what? You might get beat down by the world, but when you're here, you're cared for. You have dignity because you're a human made in the image of God. And if that's the kind of thing you wanna take part in, then I wanna encourage you to follow the principles of everything that Jesus has said today by trusting us. Here's what that means. Here's simply what that means. I would encourage you to trust us 
by actually doing something called the tithe. The tithe is called, it literally means 10%, 10%. My belief is this, this is where every Christian ought to be first, not last. The tithe literally just means that we, we, we start with the first 10%, the first of what we have goes to God. Then we give offerings. Offerings are a sacrifice, and they are over above that. It's everything above that 10% mark. And in different seasons of your life, it might be different, but I'll never forget the day I was challenged in Bible college to go big or go home. I remember one of my professors living on very modest means, and I remember him saying that he and his family gave 25% of their income away. And I remember thinking, I know what a Bible college professor makes. How in the world do you do that? And he said, you know what? Because my family knows we make sacrifices to make it happen. We don't get 10 and 20 gifts at Christmas. We get one gift each that we buy for each other, and it's a limited amount. And it was radical, but something in my heart grabbed on and I thought, you know what, when I stand before my father in heaven and I get to see how many people will or won't be there because of the investment that I took part in, I wanna see more people there than I wanna see presents I left behind. Maybe wondering what these buckets are for. Me too. Here's the way most of us think of our finances. Camera team, sorry. We know we got to pay Uncle Sam, right? So, because you only have two things in life you're going to do, right? Death and taxes. That says tax, but you can't see it. See how this works. Taxes. So then, kind of like the next bucket we look at is, all right, well, after taxes, I got to put some money aside because one day I'm going to retire. One day I'm going to have to save, right? So I'm going to stick that. That's the next bucket that I got to fill, the next mouth I got to feed. Well, after that, I got bills to pay. Not one bill. I got bills. And because there wasn't any room for Ness, two bills. Get it? Okay, forget it. So I got to pay my bills, right? My heating, my electric, all those other things. They got to happen. But then the problem is I need some me. I need some me money. I wanted a new dress, new shoes, new clothes, new whatever. So I'm going to put this in. Me goes next. But then the problem is there's you. And like, you know, I run into you and I hear your side story and I go, I really want to help, but I can't because all the other buckets took all my money. So if there's anything left, you can have a little bit of whatever I got left. And then we go, well, you know, I'm not sure there's enough room for God, but maybe, okay, God, you can have whatever. There's a lot of buckets. And you know, if you break those down, there's even more buckets, right? Because bills aren't just two and taxes aren't just one and so on and so on. There's not just one of you. So we need a plan. And what God says is don't start in this order. Flip it. Start here. Plan to put me first. Then plan to put others next. Like how do you do that? Well, look, there's a lot of ways to solve this. But for my wife and I, again, we just put money in a generosity account every paycheck. It's not a ton of money. But it's our amount that we give to other people. So anytime we have a need that someone comes up in somebody's life, it's like, boom, right there. We've already been planning on your need. And it's amazing how God connects our bank accounts to other people's needs. Sometimes when there's no money in there, my wife and I get creative. You know what we do? We sell stuff, our possessions. We try to get them out on Facebook or whatever, get some money back and say, hey, we got some money to help you with your need. And then you just work. You still gotta do taxes, right? But if the buckets aren't in the right order, you never get where you're trying to go. Make sense? That's why we put God first. So, with that, we're going to wrap up here. I've gone long enough. But I want to read you two last verses from Jesus. Luke 6, verse 37. Give and you will receive. Your gift will return to you in full. Pressed down, shaken together to make room for more. Running over and poured into your lap. The amount you give will determine the amount you get back. Now, what's Jesus saying here towards the end of this little section? What he's saying is you can't outgive God. I want you to picture one of these buckets, like the God bucket, the you bucket, and it's got being poured in with sand. 
And the sand represents the blessing that's coming. And God's like shaking it up and shaking it up. Make sure there's pack down in there. Get more, more, more. Get more in there. Come on. More, more, more. Keep going. Keep going. And then you get to the top and it's full and it just keeps spilling over into your lap. Keep shaking it. Yep, yep, yep. That's what God's going to do. That's the promise Jesus is making. When you take up generosity, you'll always get back more than what you gave. And I don't mean money. I think we've been clear. What we mean is lives. And what's more valuable and lives. That's why John Piper says this. My joy grows with every soul that seeks the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Remember, you have one life. That's all. You were made for God. Don't waste it. What I want to do right now is pray. And I'm going to give you the chance to wrestle with God over what you've heard today. And then we're going to take communion. So communion servers, go ahead. We'll wait for you to go and then we'll pray. Father in heaven, thank you Thank you for all that we have. Everything we have is from you. Everything we have is a blessing. God, our fears about life cloud our vision. God, I pray through your word today shared. I pray through your heart moving in us, your spirit stirring in us. God, would you align our lives and our heart to yours? God, I pray for every person in here who's not yet trusted you with their resources God, would you stir in them this burning desire to surrender? That, Father, on their last day, they might see a multitude of people in heaven because of their generous investment in you. God, I pray right now. I pray for the man, the woman who's recently received a bonus is looking at that year-end giving and what they're gonna do and how they're gonna do it. God, I pray that you would encourage them, challenge them to trust here at Kingsway to take a step of faith and make an investment here. Not an easy one, a sacrificial one. And I pray, God, you would get a hold of their heart, that they would uh, not just give here, but consider their lives to be lives of generosity, that when they see a need, they would be moved and stirred to meet it, and that through doing that, we would bring heaven to earth. Oh, God, there is no topic more than the topic of money that we hate talking about because there's no topic more that makes us sacrifice more than money. Father, help us to put first things first. That you might receive all the glory and the honor and the praise. In the name of Jesus.